Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Harm Bondel's with us, and I want to rip up the script, Harm. And I really want to go back to first first Fed principles here with Richard Clarida, a wonderful supporter of, of my work over the years. I've done panels with Dr. Clarida uh, around the world. And, of course, he's been a timeless guest with us uh, with uh, Columbia University and with PIMCO. And he is a newly minted vice chairman of the Fed. Let's begin with he's taking Stan Fisher's spot. From where you sit, what's the difference between Stan Fisher economics and Richard Clarida economics? Well, first of all, um, Stan Fisher is hard to replace just as a personality and given his vast um, experience that he has. That said, I mean, we, we th- I think most observers in the markets and in academia agree that Rich Clarida is a great candidate to um, to become the Fed chair, um, uh, vice chair at the Fed. Um, in terms of policies and particularly implications for the market, <coughs> as boring as it sounds, I think there is really not much of a difference uh, in terms of the 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 outlook for the next several months and quarters. Okay, but I'm going to bring into the 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 word the H word. There can be a number of H words, but right now it's going to be humility. Because Richard Clarida is a monetary monetary policy acts is associated with dynamic stochastic uh, general equilibrium theory DSGE and he, with Gertler and he's 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 someone who has constructed a lot of mathematical models. Am I right, Harm? That really really didn't work out. <laughs> um. I think that is something that most of us have learned that made the, the steps from academia. I mean, most, none of us were as great as the names that you just mentioned. But in general, if you come from academia where you deal with lots of these fancy models and then you move over to the more... To the, rea- the harm bundles <laughs> reality. To, to the real world, if you want. I mean, you say goodbye to many of these models and, and you discount the message of many of them. You still use them to form a an educated guess, maybe right. as a baseline. <clears throat> But you, you, as I said, you discount mm. it and you blend it more with what's re- going on in the real world. So therefore, I wouldn't. I, okay. I think it's great that he's familiar mm. with all those models. I think that he uses them still. But I also think right. I'm, I'm convinced uh, he he knows right. that you shouldn't take him at face value. A, a part of it is a three or four standard deviation move. Now we're all living fat and happy. It was a living fat and happy Jackson Hole. Things are great. The economy's great. But the reason a Richard Claret is around as vice chairman whomever the chair is or chairman, the reason they're around is an exogenous shock crisis, right? I mean, that's they're like an airline pilot. They're paid once a year to be sure the beast gets down on the ground. Yeah, I mean, that has been one of the, the, the ex-ante comments on, on, on Jay Powell <clears throat> becoming the Fed chair, saying that he's not a trained economist, you know? And, and given all the departures that we have seen in the board and in some regional Fed banks, people are worried that there's just a lack of um, experience, academic knowledge, and all this in this right. Fed. And I think that void, a good, I mean, they, putting Clarida there um, is really helping to right. address this. And yes, it's, <clears throat> Jay Powell, to have a non-trained economist there is not an issue as long as right. you correctly said, as we are in, in, on cruising speed and cruising altitude. You, I mean, you barely don't have to do anything. Okay, you don't have to do anything, but we got a September lift. We all get that. Yep. December mystery. And I would suggest, and folks, this is a CFA term, 
a ginormous mystery <laughs> about 2019. Yes. How ginormous is the mystery of what the Fed's going to do next year? I would say it's gr at least greater than the perception. Uh, that's that is. I think I agree. Um, there are two big unknowns, right? One is how strong will the economy be throughout the year, particularly the second half of the year? And the other big unknown is where is the natural interest rate, right? The equilibrium rate. So the point is, even if the economy keeps growing at a decent pace, the Fed may conclude that they should stop at the equilibrium at the long-term neutral rate, which we don't know where it is, right? Everybody has a, has a guess. It's somewhere around 3%, but some people say it's a bit lower. Some people it's a bit higher. So that these two factors, if okay. you add them up, that means there is probably more uncertainty right now okay. than, than people believe. I want to stay in theory here in our next section with Mr. Bondos. We'll get to the nuts and bolts of the American economy. Rich Miller, one of our giants of economic writing, wherever we're honored that he's at Bloomberg, has a tour de force today on this silliness over stars. We've got our star out of San Francisco. I'll let you explain it. And now we're going through the mathiness. I mean, come on, it's a physics envy redux. We've got pie start, folks. Pie, you know, like like the what was it Reeves? You know, the movie Pie. You know, it's like you a mean Greek 3. symbol. Three point one four thing. Yeah, three point one four <laughs> thing. You're nailing that geometry this morning, John. <laughs> but anyways, within the Taylor rule, the inflation symbol is the letter pi. So we got R star, we got pi star, we got some fictional thing fast star. Isn't this just mathematic mathematical regurgitation again? No, I think the there's a strong theoretical um, reason for having these stars, these equilibrium numbers. Why? Um, because that helps you to. Um, to determine where your policy rate should be, what the economy is doing to relative to what it can do long term. The problem with all this is, as I mentioned earlier, and that, that's that's a big part of the issue, and I think that's why we we argue about it, is that we can't measure it, right? And there's so much uncertainty around it. And then the the the, the counter argument of using it is, why do you do you base all your forecasts and 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 the, right. the policy outlook on variables that you can't see? that you can't measure very well, and, and when there's so much uncertainty, okay. right? I, uh, the Taylor Rule, folks, you can get it on the Bloomberg. For those of you with a terminal in your car, good morning, Mike. T-A-Y-L is a brilliant exposition on the Taylor Rule, and harm to your point, it has six <coughs> data plugins on the advanced Taylor Rule. Now, some would say there's only two plugins, but there's six plugins, and all this star envy that we've got going, this physics envy, is about plugins that we don't know. We don't know what the final result is, or to potential GDP, or to the plugins, do we? Yeah, and, but the, the reason th that is probably one reason why some central banks just look at realized inflation rates, right? I mean, that's what what the Europeans, for example, do. They all, I mean, the difference between the, the what the Bundesbank, the ECB, um, uh, Bundesbank back then. ECB now and the Fed are doing is not as big as you would think if you just look at you know ECB <clears throat> following price level stability and the Fed is looking at this had this dual right. mandate, because the ECB also looks at this transmission channel through the real economy and how it ultimately affects inflation, you know and the the the, the black box in between is like in U, yeah. a U star which we haven't mentioned the the equilibrium unemployment rate the Nairu. Um, and and how the economy is doing relatively to this and you know, the only star that works. There was a rich, uh, the rich Truman. The uh, Truman, uh, Truman was a movie. The movie was Truman with uh, the mass, uh, Jim Carrey. Jim Carrey. The funniest scene in the movie 
when it's like the Truman Show, and they're in like they're like in the, in, the, in the middle of the movie, and the light it's like canister, stream of consciousness the, from no, Tom. No, the light <laughs> canister that was serious. Yeah. Falls from the sky, and on the, on the on the edge of the canister is masking tape that says "Serious." <laughs> okay, Sirius is to the southwest okay. of Orion. I think I know where you're going. There's your astronomy for today. This is Bloomberg. I ask you with us uh, with uh, a lot of talk on investment, and we like that, and it's important. But Pim, I'm going to rip up the August script here. You're going to rip it up because you, you know gonna... we talk about great investment managers, John Templeton and others, and I've had the honor of uh, of speaking at times to Chuck Royce, who got so angry about a small village in Rhode Island that he actually did what rich people are supposed to do. He saved it almost like John Rockefeller in Woodstock, Vermont. Chuck Royce went out, folks, and was appalled that they were going to make McMansions on where Troy Gajewski goes and where he just got back from. Explain the miracle that Chuck Royce did to Watch Hill, Rhode Island. Well, I'm sure other people deserve credit as well. But, you know, from our understanding, Chuck Royce was uh, instrumental in rebuilding the Ocean House, taking it from a somewhat rundown complex into yeah. one of the most magnificent spots on the eastern seaboard. And the whole town has benefited westerly. You know, obviously the town of Watch Hill, there's been spillover to Mesquamacut. So yeah. it's been remarkable to see what's mm -hmm. transpired there the last 10 to 15 to years. To our global audience, and Pim, jump in here because I know you spent time up there. I mean, folks, all you need to know, Taylor Swift, this is where she goes. And, and the answer, Pim, it's equidistant from Boston and New York. Mm -hmm. On a clear day, you could see Block Island. Block Island yep. can see Watch Hill. And it, it literally goes back to the Revolutionary War for importance and gorgiosity, right? Gorgiosity. Wow. Yeah. I didn't, Revolutionary War. I like, I like that I term, gorgiosity. That's yeah. CFA, CFA level four. Troy, all right. Yeah. Well, but, come on. While we've got Troy here, can we ask him about money because no i want to talk what, about taylor oh, swift watch hill is pretty cool to talk about though you know okay. <laughs> I, I i realize it is but you do actually have to well i mean mr Royce, pay the bills yeah you, you have to pay the bills he had to turn uh the ocean house into its glamorosity as tom described mm -hmm. how do we get there let let's say uh you're in watch hill now you're waking up you're kind of thinking all right it is august i might have uh, a bond or two coming due mm -hmm. And I'm going to have some cash, and they call Troy and they say, you know what? What do you think we ought to do with this with this money? We should we hold on to it a little bit? Should we put it back into the market? Should we buy some stocks? What What are you kind of doing? Well, you know, our main focus today is on U.S. economically sensitive assets that are tied okay. to the U.S. consumer in the housing market, and the whole philosophy behind that is: look, we're trying to provide diversification for clients, but at the same time, we're trying to make them money. So it's very hard to make any positive return above mid-single digits without taking some economic risk. Okay. But you also want to provide some diversification to clients because most of their risk is tied to corporate America and international equities and high-yield bonds. And so when you look at this cycle, it reminds us of the late 90s in many ways. And the U.S. consumer is in really good shape right now. So we think being tied to U.S. economically sensitive assets focused on the U.S. consumer that can also benefit from Fed rate hikes because they're floating rate is a great strategy to make high single-digit returns with much less risk if the economy suffers a surprise recession. So what are you talking about? Things like special situations, uh, bank loans, yeah, things so, of that nature? So, so, or if someone asks you to help fund a startup restaurant, 
that's serving vegan food in Watch Hill should yeah, you go ahead and pull the trigger? Th- that's not our cup of tea. You know, we, we tend to focus on things that actually trade, right, that you can actually get in like and out liquidity. of. like yeah, liquidity. Yeah, well, liquidity, people always underestimate how important liquidity is because changing your mind is very crucial to be a successful investor over time. But if you look right now, many of our risks are tied to residential housing market where you're not going to make a fortune. You're not going to make 12 15%, but you can make 6 to 8% yeah. with very little downside. They're also tied to multifamily commercial real estate, which despite some overbuilding from a debt debtor perspective, there's very little risk of loss. Yeah. And, and then additionally, we're tied to the regional community banking system where you've had major regulatory reform, benefits from tax reform, and also better right. net interest margin in the broader banking system. We've seen a number of hedge funds crater for any wide set of reasons. How does a successful hedge fund get out after year three? Year one, it's all, you know, maybe they do well, maybe they do don't. Year two, my mathematics is somewhere in the vicinity of year three to year four. Just by the numbers, hedge funds run into trouble. Well, you you know, part of that's just tied to any investment strategy that's thoughtful and has a chance to make money will take risk. And part of that risk is mark to market. And over a three to four year period, hedge funds often suffer some type of drawdown. So if you haven't generated attractive enough returns to prove that you have an alpha proposition, when you experience that inevitable mark-to-market drawdown, clients tend to to turn their backs on you and, and redeem. And so that's why people forget, but hedge funds are small businesses. All small businesses go through tough times. Uh, many financial service industries uh, uh, businesses fail. And so there should be no surprise that there's substantial turnover. Is there a new surprise now because we're getting double-digit S&P gains, Dow 26,000, PIMS all fired up about S&P 3,000? Maybe. Yeah, well, look, I think the biggest challenge for all active managers since the crisis has been how well U.S. equities have done and how strong this bull market's been. And you know, Have you been riding the bull market? We've been trying as to, much as you wish you had. Look, hindsight's always twenty twenty. Um, if you're if you're mandated, I'm, to I'm generate, taking that as a, as a kind of not as much as we wish. Well, I think if your mandate's to generate non correlated returns, you can only have so much beta. Okay. So so the key is how do you generate the best return you can without <clears throat> having too much sensitivity to equities. So in hindsight, we should have all just put our money in the Nasdaq and hope for the best. You know, eight years ago. Um, but we think we have been benefiting from strong economic growth, albeit with lower returns than the equity market. Okay, I, I get, but Pim, you this get is that? critical. This is critical. That was well said. Yeah. This is very CFA of you. This is this is <laughs> no Greek terms. No, well, no, yeah. you got beta in there. You know, <laughs> oh, you in the timeout chair and beta. I but, that but in. what is so important here is we've been doing this since two thousand seven, eight, nine. I've given speeches with everybody saying it's a single digit world, mm-hmm. and everybody's managing for a single digit. World, Pim. Not if you're invested in the Nasdaq. You've been great at this. It's not a single-digit world, is it? Well, not for U.S. equities, right? I mean, look, when when equities corrected earlier this year, we were very confident that we would see higher highs and the equities would have high single-digit to low teens returns. That looks to be the case. Now, the question is, can you produce similar returns from a different format that does not have as much downside if things turn south? And and we think. We have a chance to do that, albeit in in mid to high single digits. Okay, but I mean, if you were sitting, uh, maybe you know, the the family is going to Watch Hill, mm-hmm. and the children decide that even though it's a beautiful day, they're going to stay home and they're going to play on their mobile phones and they're going to watch Netflix and they're going to listen order to stuff, Taylor. They're going to yeah. order stuff from Amazon. Yep. If you'd invested in two of those stocks, you would have beaten just about every manager there is. Yeah, you crushed day, active right? management. Okay. Yeah. It's so not even close. You you're an expert at event driven and arbitrage, right? 
is can you give us one example of an investment right now that you're looking at or that you've already invested in or something specific that you can just use? Yeah, as an sure. Example? So so look, we we own uh, the junior debt securities of legacy Trust CDOs or CDOs of the Trust Preferred Securities of Regional Community Banks. These have when you say CUNY banks, explain it. I apologize. Community banks. Community banks. Right. Yeah, yeah. So basically, if you think it's of this, Rhode in, Island in, yeah. If you think of this investment thesis, it's based on the fact that regional community banks have the best credit quality they've had in over a generation. There's been massive deleveraging. On top of that, you have a tailwind of regulatory relief and tax reform. On top of that, they're floating rate securities. So every time the Fed hikes, you're doing a high five. And when you combine low dollar prices with improving cash flows and stronger fundamentals, you tend to have a positive outcome. That being said, Pim, we're the first to admit that the FANG stocks could certainly outperform No, no, that that's exposure. okay, but I mean, it's yeah. a completely different thing, and yeah. I get it non non-correlated. Mm -hmm. And is it also because the banks basically have been prohibited from issuing preferred securities, which is what they used to be able to access in order to get this kind of funding? Or well, they haven't been prohibited. It's just- it's with the, It doesn't work. Yeah, it doesn't work anymore. So that market yeah. shrunk over time, and there's a supply-demand <clears throat> well, dynamic that helps benefit you as an investor. So, so junior, right? Junior? Junior, yes. Junior, junior debt securities. Oh, yes. listen, junior you, debt security. I'm, this know, is very mezzanine senior. of you. It is very oh. mezzanine. It's very like mezzanine. That, yeah. Well, what, what, what I got to say here, I mean, this has been a lot of really good theory. And Troy was great yeah. with Harmbondos this morning celebrating the CFA thing. I'm going to go to the basic hedge fund theory, mm -hmm. which is really, really important, is because we know within the game of investments, the player's going to play, 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 play. And the haters, they're going to hate, 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 hate. And all we know is Troy, he's going to go, baby, I'm going to shake, 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 and shake it off. And shake it off, which is, you know, the the theory. What are you looking at me like that, Pim? This that's is the, that's this actually is the very well done. Yeah. Did yeah. you like I'm that? Did I do that? I'm just Taylor checking Swift's my watch now. We wow. did that with, you know, with Taylor and you know, you're out yeah. bonding with yeah. her. Uh, it, it's a small abode she has out there, yeah, right? It's quite, it's quite tiny. Yeah. Is, 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 is she ever on the 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 the, the wheel, the carousel you that know, goes we, around? We've never seen her, but I know when she's there, she has a huge security detail. Okay. So, yeah. One of the joys of one D. Gartman is that unlike 99.9% of the trading public, if you turn over to the page, the last page of his lengthy tome written in 1 a.m. every morning is recommendations. We here beginneth. Dennis, you are long commodities and you are short U.S. equities. So when the market's going up, everybody's going to say Gartman's an idiot, but it's more sophisticated than that. And to be long of commodities and short of equities leads to an original outcome. Discuss. Well, first of all, I, I have had that idea on for almost uh, eight months, and it has moved, get this, a grand total of one-tenth of one percent against me. Stocks have outperformed commodities by one-tenth of one percent over the course of the last eight months. Um, some may argue and say that's a big move. I think that one-tenth of one percent is relatively inconsequential under most circumstances. But I, I, do think, I do think from a historical perspective that commodities, having been in a protracted bear market for a number of years, are indeed inordinately cheap relative to equities. I think equities, having been in a protracted bull market for nine years, are inordinately expensive relative to commodities. Yeah. I am the I'm the chairman of the University of Akron's endowment committee, and we've actually begun to move some of our stock positions into commodity positions, into real assets, 
And, uh, you know, for, for several months I am incorrect, but commodities are slightly stronger, stocks are slightly stronger, and the trade has not done much either way over the course of the last eight months, to be quite Tim, honest. What, what kind of commodities, Dennis? Well, if you make me buy any one single commodity, and I'd rather think of commodities in a, in a broad Catholic term rather than an individual commodity in a, in, a, in, a, in a focused parochial term, but if you're going to make me be parochial, I'd rather own wheat than probably anything else. The crop size here in the United States is small. The prospective planting is coming for the next winter wheat crop, and it's hard to believe here we are in the middle of summer, but we have to think about what's going to go into the ground for the winter wheat crop is only going to be about an increase of 1%. But what's really happening is that the crops in, in Australia are being decimated by weather. The crops in, in Russia and Ukraine and, and Romania ha- have been decimated by weather. And demand continues to be relatively strong. So if I, if I could only buy one, if you're going to force me to be that parochial, let me buy wheat. All right, so 5.15 a bushel for wheat, you like that, as opposed to corn, for example? Yes. Okay. Yes, exactly. I think the corn-wheat ratio... Wheat is, is very cheap, and I think that the fundamentals yeah. are, are on the stronger side for the wheat market relative to the corn market. As concerning corn and soybeans, it's been an ex- incredible growing season here in North America. Mother Nature has been extraordinary. The rains have been abundant. The temperatures have been moderate. And let's, let's congratulate the local, the, the state the land-grant universities, Monsanto and oh, Mother God, Nature, for continuing go. to have a long and protracted bull market in yields. Does this fold into North Carolina State football when we start talking land grant schools? Is that where? Well, and I was I was hoping you might pick that up, but we are yeah. we, we be, college football begins this weekend. Thank goodness. Well, I would like to congratulate North Carolina State for not doing this starting in August foolishness. It's it's uh, American that they start September one against James Madison, which is a good I think which as well. Dennis, school. just because we're on, Go ahead, Dennis. I, I'm, I'm, I'm nervous about playing uh, James Madison on the first game of the year. Yeah. JMU has been a very, very good football team for College Division Two. Yeah. Um, uh, Dennis, uh, because we're on commodities, let's go to gold. Yeah. Now. I want to do gold later. Yeah. Let's do gold right now. What a mystery. Is gold, does it move the same as it used to move? No, it really doesn't, Tom. It, it, it doesn't seem to have the same movement incumbent in, in, in major geopolitical circumstances. You see some sort of untoward circumstance in India, you'd think gold would get a bid. It doesn't. Uh, what happens, I think, or what is happening is, is that we have two protracted sellers. I think the Central Bank of Turkey and the, and the Central Bank of Venezuela have been selling their what, what reserves of gold they have had. The buyers have quietly been Russia and China. But those, those sellers have, have been rather aggressive and forced sellers, the, the Turks, to support their currency and Venezuela to, to support what it can to, before it falls into utter and complete and total chaos. Can I ask Dennis Gartman about currencies? Please. Yeah. Sure, why I not? Want to know about, I want to know what <clears throat> dollar euro. Is, is Tom going to you know, continental Europe or are we going to send him to the U.K. where it's 128.80 pounds sterling? Uh, I, I think that the euro is extremely expensive at these po- at these levels. I think that the we, we are focusing upon the wrong circumstance. We should be focusing upon what's happening in Italy. You have a government comprised of the the Five Star Movement and the Liga, the formerly the Liga Nord, uh, both of whom are anti-Brussels in orientation, anti-Frankfurt in orientation, and I really do think that the that the bridge collapse two weeks ago in Genoa was, as I wrote in today's newsletter. The 9/11 for Italy. It, from yeah. from that point on, things have changed. Italy has no choice but to spend enormous amounts of money on infrastructure. 
Brussels yeah. and Frankfurt will not allow it. I'm sure you'll have this tomorrow, Dennis, if not, give me credit. And that is a log chart of a J.P. Morgan Emerging Market Foreign Exchange Index. And we are log, log quadratic accelerating to a weaker level and we're almost through the august 13th weakness i mean em currencies can't get out of their way can they i don't think they can and nor should they i mean yeah venezuela has dragged the whole world down turkey has dragged the whole world down but the ringgit is 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 weak and weakening it's not just a circumstance of turkey and italy or Turkey and uh, yeah. Venezuela. This is this is broad. This is Catholic in terms. Well, I uh, and we've seen that this morning, folks, as we talked about uh, at the very beginning of surveillance. Dennis Gartman will continue us. We're going to do an all-U.S. equity discussion with Mr. Gartman, maybe touch on the politics of the moment uh, as well. He has the Gartman letter. We protect the copyright of all our guests. You can get the Gartman letter through his vast complex uh, as well while he's out. Tim, why don't you bring in the ambassador? But simply, folks, there's lots of people that talk and there's others that do. Yes. And on trade, few do, and they talk differently than the pundits. Uh, well, yes, they do. And uh, Miriam Sapiro is a uh, currently a non-resident senior fellow at the Brookings uh, Institution, previously served as deputy trade representative and became the acting trade representative. This is uh, in 2013. And she joins us now. Miriam, thank you very much for being with us, Ambassador. What exactly does the U.S. trade representative do in those meetings? Well, the, the mission of the office, and it's great to be here with both of you this morning. Uh, the mission of the office is to negotiate and enforce trade and investment agreements uh, with partners around the world in order to be able to boost U.S. exports of goods and services. Okay, but having said that, what what goes on in the meeting? I mean, do you come with a list of things that you want to negotiate? Do you have a personal relationship on one level with your counterpart? How does that dynamic actually work? Do you bring in lots of other people into the meeting, experts on specific topics? How does that back and forth happen? Yes, yes, and yes. So you develop essentially a whole-of-government approach, working not just with the team at USTR, uh, many of the most dedicated uh, civil servants who have been there for years working on these issues, uh, because, as you know, they're they're often quite complex. Um, but you have a very strong team at USTR, and then you work closely with other U.S. government agencies, like the State Department, the Commerce Department, the Treasury Department, and others, to determine what are the most important U.S. objectives here, yeah. and how are we going to try to achieve them. If, if and, I, and I have this phrase, Ambassador, you can steal it from me if you want. The royalty stream is, <laughs> is valuable, which is Trump lateral. Trump lateral is my way or the highway. And all uh-huh. of the good people like you within the administration have to deal with my way or the highway. That doesn't buttress up against complexity very well. How are they going to sell Canadian and Mexican complexity to President Trump? Well, that's, that's the challenge. And that's why it was good news this week that we saw an agreement in principle with Mexico on a new NAFTA. Because it it shows that the administration can make compromises when it wants to reach an agreement. So there are implications beyond Mexico, 
um, since we're conducting both preliminary and actual negotiations on different kinds of agreements with many partners from the EU to Japan and now Kenya. Um, but the, the challenge with this agreement is that NAFTA, as you know, is a trilateral agreement, three ways between the U.S., Mexico, and Canada. And Canada has not been part of the talks for the last few weeks. There's nothing wrong with that in principle because there were issues that the United States and Mexico needed to work out. Um, but bringing in Canada now uh, under a very tight uh, time constraint, essentially 48 to 60 hours or left in the clock, and we can talk more about why that is, uh, the, the administration seems to have moved back to a my way or the highway approach with Canada. That approach did not work uh, with when both countries were part of the negotiation. I, I don't think it worked with Mexico. It's got to be a real give and take to try to reach some kind of solution that all of the countries involved can then go back home and sell. In these negotiations, sorry, I beg your pardon. Go ahead. Basic principle of diplomacy 101. If you want to get an agreement, it's got to have something in it for everyone. All right. in in that In that sort of scenario, is it likely that the U.S. trade representative will use and reference whatever has been agreed to with Mexico? while they negotiate directly with Canada? I mean, will they talk about the Mexican trade agreement and say, well, you know, we were able to do this with Mexico. We want to be able to do this with Canada. Is it, is it, do you use those agreements back and forth? Well, absolutely, because here the goal is, and this is still the administration's goal at the moment, to have it be a trilateral agreement. NAFTA is a three-way agreement. If you want to replace NAFTA, you need a three-way agreement, not one two-way agreement or even two two-way agreements. You need a three-way agreement because at the moment, and it's been this way for some time, our three economies are so interdependent. And, you know, CEOs that I've spoken with are craving more certainty and more stability on the trade front. And that includes either NAFTA continuing the way it is or being improved. But NAFTA means Canada and Mexico, not just Mexico, because whether you're talking about cars, or cattle, or other products, they cross the borders multiple times before they're sold to consumers. Does President Trump know that? Secretary Mnuchin knows that. It was, I was very happy to see him uh, quoted, uh, I think it was in the New York Times, um, acknowledging that the three economies are so intertwined. That's a, a word that many of us use because it describes so well the situation. So mm -hmm. I have no doubt that there are people, and I think Ambassador Lighthizer, who is now the U.S. Trade Representative, understands that. And I am, uh, I am confident that point has been made to the president. And uh, hopefully, you know, we will see Canada brought into the negotiations um, before the end of this week. Um, and... Uh, you know, if that doesn't prove possible, I think there'll be a lot of pressure on the administration to try to do something uh, with them. And then, you know, coming week or so, there might be a little bit of wiggle room uh, with respect to the congressional calendar, not a whole lot, but there might be a little bit of wiggle room because the signed agreement doesn't actually have to be presented to Congress for another 30 days.
Ambassador, do the political views or positions of the trade representatives matter? Well, the trade representative is a political appointee in the cabinet of the president. So it's important that it be someone who is close to the president, um, has his or her trust, uh, can speak authoritatively. Um, you know, it is the most important role in terms of trying to shape these agreements. And um, then once once an agreement is reached, uh, develop the necessary support in Congress to see yeah. it passed. We've got time for one more question. We'd love to have you on again, Ambassador. Ambassador Sapiro. We avoided TPP. Both candidates, Clinton and Trump, said, no, we're not going to do TPP. Do you envisualize America bolting on to what Japan has wrought? Or do we need to wait for a whole new round of multilateral discussions on the Pacific Rim? Well, I would say let's take this one agreement at a time. So, again, it's good news that the U.S. and Mexico were able to reach an agreement in principle earlier this week. Let's hope that uh, the administration can adopt a similarly creative approach and try to bring yeah. Canada on, not as a take it or leave it, but really talk to Canada and see where they can have a meeting of the minds. And then I think that will build some positive momentum and maybe we'll be able yeah. to look at TPP again, because as you probably know, pulling out of that agreement was a gift to one country and that country is China, not the U.S. So uh, there, there should have been an effort in my view to at least try uh, to explore with other countries what uh, what aspects of TPP might have been improved, but that did not happen. Ambassador, thank you so much. Our former U.S. Deputy Trade Representative, uh, Miriam Sapiro. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.